noticed a consistent theme over the course of um, now hundreds upon hundreds of people. I've I've had the rich reward uh, and uh, just honor of working with. Depression is very often a key challenge that I've uh, helped people address. And what I've found over the course of these dozen years is that depression is actually, one, something that's very different from the way most people assume it is. Depression is, in my experience, very often something that is essentially a kind of a message or has a function to it. It's not a mistake. It's not an error. A veritable flood of clinical research indicating that indeed depression serves a very clear function. It's a message from the unconscious mind to the conscious mind trying to get us to uh, do certain tasks. And when we understand this message, very often depression in fact goes into remission. It almost spontaneously goes away. So, first off, just to give you some facts, um, Brandon Hedaka wrote a massive paper called Depression as a Disease of Modernity, and he showed that in the course of 10 years, from the 1990s to the mid-2000s, the incidence of depression went up over 200% in the population in America. Now, roughly 3.3% to over 7% have major depressive uh, events in any given year. And what that means is immediately, if you have any knowledge of genetics, that means it cannot be primarily a genetic issue because there's no such a thing as a genetic issue that would suddenly spike that much in such a short period of time. And in fact, research by Lohoff, F.W. Lohoff, in his paper on the genetics of depression concluded that despite all the money spent by pharma and universities and clinics to try to find a genetic pathogenesis, which means a cause, that they failed. And that now the estimate is that probably 70% of the causes of depression have nothing to do with genetics, have nothing to do with too little serotonin, uh, synaptically present, or too little GABA, or too, uh, it, you know, interferences of dopamine. While those might play minor roles, they do not play a major role in depression. So what does cause depression? Well, in fact, it's not really a mystery. Uh, one thing that is very clearly known is that in individuals with, who've been diagnosed with any form of depression have clear areas in the brain that are far more active than in other populations. To be specific, the right anterior cingulate cortex, Broadman's area number 25, none of you care, I'm just <laughs> in case one person in the room wants to know, the amygdala. And what do all these areas have in common besides controlling the amount of serotonin that's synoptically present is these are all regions that pay attention to the quality of our social connections in our life, our tribal connections, how securely connected do we feel to others. 
This is not surprising. As one great uh, psychologist, Ian McGinnis, noted, in contemporary life, more and more, we are prioritizing the goals set by the left hemisphere, which are about competition, acquiring, accumulating financial advantages, seeking objects and material goods to feel secure at the expense of the right hemisphere's role, which encourages emotional connection. The left hemisphere is all about accumulating things in the future. It's very future-oriented. The right hemisphere lives very much in the present and past. It's all the past experiences of abandonment and rejections are still felt, and the way we feel securely connected today is still very much felt. The problem is that the right hemisphere's emotional needs for secure connection via emotional authenticity are signaled to us via the body, and very few of us know how to interpret those feelings. We tend to repress for a long time feelings of sadness, anxiety, loss, despair, and we tend to focus and fixate on the left hemisphere's thoughts and narratives, which are all about how successful and happy we'll be if we achieve a lot of money and social recognition and uh, acclaim, and if we get a lot of likes on the posts that we put up on Facebook or on Tinder. Tinder? No. Twitter. <laughs> I'm not even on Tinder, but I suppose you might like that too. So my proposal is that prioritizing self-oriented goals at the expense of our real meaningful connections is what lies very much at the epicenter of depression. That the more we prioritize goals such as financial security, achievement, secure work situations, in other words, we focus on the sort of performative social roles we play at work, and the less we pay attention to the real authentic connections where we reveal ourselves to friends, is to the degree that we will experience a increase. Also, another factor is the inability to process emotional losses, whether it's um, the loss of an important attachment figure and a relationship, the loss of a parent or family member. So let's look at this, and why am I making this claim? Well, just to give you a few people um, who are all uh, psychologists that specialize in um, uh, depression and studying of it, Emily Gutt uh, maintains in her papers that depression is a functional response to social problems. Neil Jacobson says that depression pushes us to detach from our performative behaviors, i.e. going to work, doing our daily obligations and chores. It pushes us to detach and go back and address an emotional issue that has been overlooked in our lives. In the Journal of Personal Psychology, in a paper called Mixed Messages, the Implication of Conflict mm -hmm. Within close relationships, they came to the conclusion that depression is the result of conflict in our cooperative relationships. <coughs> so the degree that we have a relationships that are cooperative and are mutually beneficial, and then they go away, this is the degree that we set ourselves up for depression. 
Paul Andrews wrote the paper that I'm most uh, impressed by. It's called The Bright Side of Being Blue. And they subtitled Depression as an Adaptation. And what he claims is that depression essentially coordinates a bunch of changes in our life to promote slow, methodical attention to interpersonal issues. So in other words, the symptoms of depression are there to push us to make significant changes in our lives. He continues to write, there are, uh, with the complex social problems are the primary trigger of depression. The social connections we have provide us with food, assistance, protection from enemies, and proximity to loved ones. When we, on the other hand, prioritize self-interest and competing for limited resources over those connections, depression is the inevitable result. So let's look at some of the experiences of depression one by one, and I'll try to explain how all of this adds up to a compelling case. So there are five major symptoms of depression that we can expect to see when we're treating someone or when we experience it. Withdrawal is the tendency to leave one's social obligations, all the areas in life where one has to perform, put on a smile, be lovable and charming and upbeat at work. And one of the first things that people experience when they have depression is the extreme urge to quit, to run away, to hide, to avoid any performative social situation. And yet, at the same time, those individuals can still generally show up for therapeutic encounters where they're not expected to put on a social performance. Two, people experience appetite loss and insomnia, which are generally the signs that someone is in a state of hypervigilance expecting a threat. When are we in stages of hypervigilance expecting threats? Primarily when we feel alone and vulnerable and poorly protected by people around us. Anhedonia is the lack of reward, the lack of pleasure in the things that normally give us short-term pleasures. And that, of course, when we feel that, it removes the distraction of TV and social networking and uh, media. And suddenly, we're deprived of all of the distractions that pull our attention away from the major social emotional concerns that we haven't been paying attention to. Lack of confidence, again, discourages us from chasing after and competing for resources in the world. And obsession focuses our attention on attachment losses. So suppose that the evolutionary design for depression is to pull us away from all of the performative roles in our life where we feel we have to put on some kind of maintain some kind of performance for other people and instead refocus our attention on one, the feelings of loss, abandonment, disconnection, or the lack of pro-tribal connections we feel because we've so prioritized making money and so under-prioritized altruistic connections with others or maintaining loving, secure 
accepting relationships. So Andrews goes on to maintain that another function of depression is that it suppresses aggression and competition so that we can elicit sympathy and empathy from others. Depression makes us less aggressive and less caught up in trying to compete with others, so that makes it easier for others to want to give us sympathy and provide us with loving attention when we're going through a depressive disorder. So here's some really good news if you've ever experienced depression. 80% of the subjects in a large, large Australian meta-analysis by Woodford found that there was actually a long-term benefit for their depression. It got them to make a major life reprioritization. They decided that their work was not more important than their friendships or relationships. They discovered that it was more important to stop and to mourn attachment losses than to keep pushing on or to bury emotions with substance abuse. The depressed report that they all felt at one point severe complex social problems that were only resolvable through the symptoms of depression. Furthermore, in this meta-analysis, they found that 25% of the people within three months who made significant life changes, their symptoms went away completely. 50% in six months and well over 50% in the course of a year. So, obviously, the ones it is assumed that those symptoms didn't go away are the ones who experienced trauma in childhood that requires significant more therapeutic intervention and more psychopharmaceutical help to address the symptoms. So, there's a very clear indication that what's called dysthemia, which is low-level depression, and many forms of major monopolar depression are simply messages from the right hemisphere saying, hey, fucker, <laughs> you've been spending far too much time trying to solve all of our problems by chasing after financial security, rewards, acclaim, but what you haven't been doing is turning towards other people in a meaningful way and solidifying relationships and processing attachment losses, grieving, feeling sad, and connecting emotionally in an authentic way. This is not a talk encouraging people to completely forego using SSRIs, which are antidepressants. I don't have any issue with them at all. And in fact, when I went through a major depressive disorder right after 9-11, which triggered some early trauma issues, I used antidepressants to get to a place, to the point where my Buddhist therapy could take hold and help me hold all the symptoms. It's not in any way a case saying don't take uh, antidepressants, but it is a case that if we are taking antidepressants to a degree that our emotions are numbed or that we're trying to get full relief from all of the symptoms, which very often uh, psychopharmacologists will do, they'll overprescribe in amounts that are intended to completely self-numb or lead to what's called emotional blunting. That is not helpful. So all of our symptoms are trying to tell us something. 
our anxiety is trying to tell us that there's a discrepancy between our self-concept, what we want other people to believe about us and the stories we tell ourselves about who we need to be to get love, and the way we really feel, what's called our felt concept. When there's this discrepancy between the person we want to show others and the way we really feel, that gulf is filled in by anxiety. When we feel guilt, it's because there's been an attachment disruption that we haven't addressed. And when there's lack of motivation, it means we failed to prioritize altruistic, meaningful, tribal bonds. Doing things for other, not others, not for money, but sheerly to build up a sense of social goodwill and connectedness. Now finally, I'd like to talk a little bit about what the Buddha said about depression, because actually he talked a lot about it. In Pali, the words are Visada and Keda, and they're actually both listed in the, they literally mean in uh, our language, depression and despair. And they're listed in the first noble truth of events that we can expect to happen in life. They're not second arrows that we do purposely to ourselves. They are first arrows in which they arrive in a non-volitional way very often. They happen. And the biggest error we can do with what's called first arrow um, issues is try to repress them or take them personally. To say, oh my God, why am I depressed? My depression is worse. There's something wrong with me. All of that selfing, that adding of there's something unique about my experience is needless. Depression is the inevitable result of simply when we've skewed too far away from balancing our lives in a way that maintains skillful, meaningful, heartfelt, secure, empathetic relationships. Interestingly enough, the Buddha, in a wonderful sutta, the Madhupindaka, which is probably of all the suttas one of my top five favorite, it's known as the Ball of Honey Sutta. It's an interesting sutta. The Buddha starts out, by, starts out the sutta with a confrontation, a conflict. And uh, he's eventually asked after that, what is the cause of suffering and conflict? And the Buddha traces it back through this chain of causation that's very different from most of the causation found in the Pali Canon. He says that the very root of human suffering is what he calls papancha. And papancha is when we constantly think in terms of ourselves in competition with others. That that story of how I'm doing in comparison with other people what other people think about me, uh, whether I'm achieving enough, whether I need to get or gain more, is what pulls us away from the deeply beneficial, altruistic, immersive connections that the Buddha talked about with Kalyanamita. So I think what the Buddha is leading us to conclude is that this tendency to try to solve our problems by chasing after uh, security through wealth and uh, acclaim and achievement, while it makes sense in a capitalist culture, it totally makes sense. And yet at the same time, if we give in to the hype that that's the way all of our problems and security will be solved, the inevitable result will be the emotional dysregulation 
primarily known to us as anxiety and depression. And that if we really want to limit the possibility of these events in our lives, the greatest gift we can do to ourselves is to balance our lives in a meaningful way where we're not just focusing all of our energies on the performative elements of our life, work, looking good for other people, trying to seem upbeat, but we turn towards those relationships where we can be express the full range of our emotions, the pleasant and the unpleasant. Those friendships where people can tolerate our feelings no matter how uh, difficult and painful they are. So I hope that something about tonight's talk was thought-provoking in some way. And uh, I thank you for listening.